this episode of Justice in Motion, we are looking at the social justice present within horror films. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Justice in Motion, the social justice film report. I'm your host, Daniel Swan. It's October now, as incredible as that may seem, which means two things. Firstly, I have to start off in full-on sales mode because the Social Justice Film Festival is going on right now. Assuming, of course, you're listening to this within the first six days of the episode's release. Now, the good news is that even though we're partway through the festival already, you've still got the opportunity to watch every single second of every single film, and you don't even have to leave the house to do it. The festival this year is all online, it's all on demand, it's all very reasonably priced, if I may say so, and there are so many incredible films that you should watch. I can't talk about all of them, uh, but some personal favourites of mine, uh, just to pluck them out of the herd, are Personhood, Rebel, Butterflies, Liberation Heroes, and Our Gorongoza. Now, at the moment, as I read out that list, they are just words to you, of course, but if you look them up, and you watch them at the festival, then they'll be powerful and thought-provoking experiences for you. I absolutely guarantee it. All of the information is in the episode notes uh, below, wherever you found this podcast, uh, and at socialjusticefilmfestival.org. Click on it, sign up, watch some films, you will not regret it. Now, that's the first thing that we have to talk about, because it's October. The second thing that we have to talk about, because it's October, is of course Halloween. It's less than a month away now, and in a world that... has so much real horror going on right now, I think we all need to escape into a wonderful make-believe world of make-believe horror. It's so much easier to stomach. Speaking of stomachs, my genetic yellow belly actually kind of prevents me from really going all in on horror films, but luckily... This podcast is a team effort, and two of my Social Justice Film Institute comrades, Marisa and Alana, have done something wonderful in producing this episode of the podcast. Not only that, but they even introduced the whole thing perfectly themselves, so I don't even need to describe it. I feel gloriously superfluous, so I'm going to leave you in their very, very capable hands while I start working on my fiendishly scary Halloween costume for this year. The bottle from a game of Spin the Bottle. Kissing strangers. Spooky. So please turn off the lights, gorge yourself on candy, and enjoy Beyond Scary. Social justice in horror. Hi, my name 
My name is Marisa Reyes-Pacheco. I'm a film fellow and intern for the Social Justice Film Festival and Institute. And I'm Alana Tritt, Associate Director with the Social Justice Film Festival and Institute. We're here today with John Trafton. He's a lecturer in film studies at Seattle University and the author of several works on cinema history, including his upcoming book, Movie Made Los Angeles. He's originally from Southern California and received his PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Thank you so much for joining us, John. We really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. Marisa and I wanted to ask you a few questions about social justice and horror films because you know a lot about both those things. (laughs) And we were curious to know what got you into the horror genre? What do you love about it? I really love the way that this genre in particular interacts with our emotional landscape. Next time you're watching a horror movie, whether it is a monster movie or a ghost story or psychological terror, ask yourself, what aspects of my own emotional landscape are serviced by horror films and are they maybe perhaps better serviced by horror films than they are by other genres such as comedy or melodrama or science fiction? So tropes and conventions and archetypes, recurring themes and styles, they interact with our emotional landscape and they reveal certain things to us. And I've always been really drawn and fascinated by what horror elements can uh, reveal to us. And if either of you or any of the listeners are fans of murder mysteries and crime thrillers, one of the most interesting things I've ever read about crime thrillers has been by the author Raymond Chandler, who wrote that there's there's a reason why crime films were called dime novels back in the day, because they're just sort of a, they're a dime a dozen type of story. But when they're done exceptionally well, they can rise above the level of what we might consider to be serious drama. And when I read that, I thought, you know, horror is kind of the same way. There's a reason why the horror genre has a reputation for being B-movie, fair, trash cinema, or cult cinema, because a lot of it is. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to diss on those types of films. But when it's done exceptionally well, it does rise beyond the level of what is often considered by the mainstream to be serious-minded fiction. So it's really those elements that draw me to this genre. Were there any films that really drove that point to you? I think really going back to one of my earliest memories of horror films, when I was young, I saw the original Frankenstein, the 1931 film directed by James Whale. And and it really, really got me thinking about what horror films can do and how they interact with us. And then I remember when I was 12, I first saw Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and that was a film that I just kept getting drawn back to again and again and again. And eventually I just started asking myself, you know, why, why is this a well that we're constantly returning to? 
Why has this been a genre that has been a constant in cinema from the word go right up until this very day? And it has changed and has had different content and different stylistic innovation throughout the decades and in different film cycles, but it's remained pretty much a constant. So I've always just sort of been fascinated by that and just, you know, constantly returning to these ideas that what scares us and the things that we least suspect is something that we could be drawn to in such a strong way, even though if these things were true and in real life, we would we would want nothing to do with these experiences. I think that's really interesting because I guess I just wonder if there's anything that horror films can handle um, in terms of social justice topics that other genres can't. One of the things I constantly think of are the concept of mass delusion uh, and collective insanity. And there's many different examples. If we were to go far back into history and we look at early silent cinema, especially early German expressionist cinema of the late 1910s and early 1920s, we get films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari by Robert Veen from 1920 as being a metaphor for collective insanity and uh, delusional cult-like thinking. I'm also thinking of films like Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man from 1973 with Sir Christopher Lee, not to be, of course, confused with the much-memed Nicolas Cage film from 2006. Uh, And you can even find this in recent films that in many, many not-so-subtle ways explore the recent rise of neo-fascism, not just in the United States, but in Europe as well. And I'm thinking of Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria from 2018, starring Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton. That's a really powerful set of terms for the moment, as you said. Mm -hmm. So I'm new to horror film. I used to write a lot of horror and read a lot of horror, but I couldn't actually watch the films. But some things changed, and now I can watch films. And I've gone through these lists of social justice horror films, and I was curious what films should be on social justice horror film lists, but maybe aren't? And why do you think that is? Well, I guess for starters, one film that should ultimately be at the top of any list dealing with social justice issues is George Romero's Night of the Living Dead from 1968. That is an explicit commentary on culturally ingrained racism in the United States and a commentary on, direct commentary on the civil rights movement. That would be a a must-have on any social justice horror list. Addition to that, Without any doubt, I would say the original Godzilla from 1954, directed by Ishiro Honda, about uh, the horrors of the nuclear age. I mean, you really, really can't get more explicit than that film, which unfortunately for many decades had really, really been, it was a message that had really, really been lost on American audiences uh, when it was represented in English dub film called Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and is sort of a cultural critique that has found its way back into the 
discussions around horror cinema recently. And then there, there are other films you really, really kind of wouldn't really suspect, such as David Cronenberg's The Fly from 1986 as a take on the AIDS epidemic at the time. Also, Alien, directed by Ridley Scott, a classic monster movie from 1979, is a film that, of course, is not only about the dark recesses of our mind, also the darker side of science and human nature, but a very, very strong feminist commentary that was not intended when it was originally written and when it was original, the project was originally conceived of, but it came about throughout the filmmaking through just a very natural and very organic process. And then went even further in that direction through after the film was released through its culture of fandom. So you can find social justice commentary in many, many horror films and sometimes in obvious places and sometimes in not so obvious places. I think it's really, really highlights the importance of discussions such as what we're having. When you brought up Night of the Living Dead, there's a movie called... I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a documentary called Horror Noir, and it's a documentary about the history of black horror film. And they were talking a lot about older films. So a lot of the films that you were talking about, I've seen and connected with. Yeah, I'm also thinking of a film that was quite misunderstood upon its release, uh, a film by Bill Gunn called Ganja and Hess from 1973. I haven't actually seen Ganja and Hess, but they also talked about that film and how it was such a beautifully well-shot film and it wasn't taken as well as it should have been, like it was too early for its time. Yeah, this one is a film that it's sort of a hybrid uh, genre that combines some supernatural elements with uh, psychological horror elements. And what you're saying, Risa, is that it really, really highlights an important issue with film and fan culture. Whereas like a film, as we all know, is you know, from the era of rediscovered classics and digital streaming and largely internet-based film fan communities is that films really have, you know, more than one life, the life that, you know, it's given upon its initial theatrical run and another life that it has through rediscovery and also what people attribute to the film and what people or how people choose to define what they see. And there are some cases where like a film, for example, that was made several decades ago could have a new and revised cultural significance today and even act as a rallying point for some movements. A lot of people are actually saying that we're in this golden age of horror because of how socially conscious and the smarter plot-lined films that are out now. Where do you think the horror genre stands and where do you think it's going? It's an interesting question. To be honest with you, I I disagree somewhat that we are in a quote-unquote golden age of horror. It's and one of the reasons why is because it's it's more or less a case of on the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, horror cinema as is all cinema these days, it's more diverse both in front of the camera and behind the camera. 
and the modes for experiencing cinema are more diverse and more democratized. Yet, on the other hand, horror films today, they're still operating in uh, the same way as they had been in previous decades and previous generations, just using different resources. Every genre, really from the get-go, constantly revises itself throughout history through this process where it remembers past genre usage. Like it, it will have traces and elements of how the genre had been used in the past. Yet at the same time, it draws upon the resources of the present to say something completely new. And by resources of the present, I mean conversations that are taking place in the public sphere about politics and about cultural issues, but also it could also be technology, new technology, and also new exhibition modes and new modes for experiencing cinema. So I'm not sure that it's a golden age. I think horror films are just as wonderful and just as exciting as they would have been to somebody experiencing films at the drive-in during the 1950s. Yet, at the same time, they are more diverse in the mean and the tools and technology and innovations that are at our disposal have changed the genre to explore different ideas and say different things and express the ideas that are at the core of horror in radically new ways. And I see horror continuing in this, in this direction. I mean, I'd be very, very interested to see the type of topics that are discussed ten, in horror films 10 years from now, but also equally interested to see how, what type of present-day resources these filmmakers would be drawing upon. And also at the same time, how they're either paying homage or being inspired by the horror films of yesteryear at the same time. It really sounds like you can view a horror film and experience the horror film, but you can also engage with the broader context of the genre over time. And in doing that, it becomes a a richer experience where you get these inside commentaries and references. Yeah, absolutely. And, And especially how many horror films, just how densely they can be layered and the different influences that go into them, how you kind of unpack these influences and ideas that can be hidden through multiple viewings. Uh, the Shining from earlier, that, that is a film that I, I can't even count how many times I've seen that film. It's one of my favorite films, but it's a film that sometimes it scares me and sometimes it does not. It entirely depends on the circumstances that are surrounding my viewing, maybe in things I've been through since the previous time of watching it. And the fact that while the film itself may not exactly change and it's gotten older, uh, but we have changed at the same time and we have gotten older and we've had different experiences so that the material and the secrets that it unleashes upon us 
impact us in a different way because we're not in the same position we were previously. And you can look at other horror films that do very, very similar things. I'm thinking about a European horror film from the early 80s, Andrei Zuvlovsky's Possession being one example, or even something as old and classic as Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho tends to impact audiences in ways that are both similar and different with each successive generation. So given the reiterative process of creating horror, are there any topics or tropes that are just overdone, or is it just a matter of time until they become relevant again? Well, there's always subjects that are not renewed and don't have staying power for a good reason. But for the most part, one of the things I find that it's not so much subjects that can become overdone, but rather approaches to subjects that can be overdone. There's a great saying by the late film critic Roger Ebert, where he said that films are not their subject matter, they're how they are about their subject matter. And the film that he draws upon as an example is Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. You know, it's not a film that is about boxing. It is a character study of somebody who just happened to be a boxer throughout their lives. So drawing on that, I look at horror films, I look at subjects that I think, you know, might be a little bit overdone or people might be bored and sick of, but ultimately it's not really those subjects or those topics that people become sick of. It's the approach to those subjects and topics. Like I could say, for example, that, I'm, that I might be a little bit bored of what are regarded as deeply humanistic vampire stories, such as, say, the Twilight films, you know, if, if one were to even really consider those horror stories at all. But then again, on the other hand, one could also argue that it's not so much that as a topic that's the issue, but really just sort of how people choose to go about that. So yeah, to answer your question, not subjects that, you know, I think are overdone or sick of, but maybe approaches that might get stale and then only to invite others to come along and revise them through new innovative thinking. Good advice for a new horror artist. Do you have other advice for people who want to work with this genre who maybe haven't worked with it before or are just getting started? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I, earlier I mentioned Stephen King and advice that he always gives to new writers is read, read, read as much as you can. So we can take that piece of advice and I would just adjust it for uh, a film in film terms and just say people that are new to filmmaking or other creative arts that are interested in creating films in horror, uh, be they be social, social justice oriented or otherwise, watch as many as you can. Watch classic, watch mid-period. You can watch silent horror films, watch classic Hollywood silent films, watch counterculture horror films from the 60s and the 70s, watch recent horror films, films from Asia, films from Europe, film, horror films from Latin America, Australia, all over the world. Really get to know this genre inside and out and learn how it works because you can't really expect to be really, really good at uh, your craft 
whether it's filmmaking or anything else, if you sort of live in a hermetically sealed bubble where you and your thinking and your influences are the only one that exists. So watch horror films, love horror films, embrace the genre is my advice. Thank you. And are you working on anything right now that you would like to talk about a little bit? Sure. I'm just finishing up my second book. It's called uh, Movie Made Los Angeles. And this is about how Los Angeles became the home for the American film industry during the 1910s and the 1920s, why Southern California became the prime location for an American movie industry to flourish. And this book will be due out early next year. I also have a website, johntrafton.com, that you can go to that has, uh, I publish articles very regularly and keep people up to date with forthcoming events. Uh, you can definitely go to my Instagram at johntraftonfilm. But other than that, yeah, I'm really, really excited about this new book project and looking forward to uh, traveling to SCMS uh, next conference for the new project I'm working on in Warren Cinema. Wow, you certainly do keep busy. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. I really appreciate it. This was fun. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Fantastic. Like a delicious meal that tastes even more delicious when you haven't had to cook. That was super duper interesting. A huge thank you um, to Alana and Marisa for concocting this cauldron of chat. Uh, and let's hope we can convince John to grace our podcast with his ocean of filmic knowledge again in the future. So before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out a couple of big events that we have coming up as part of our festival this year. Obviously, we've got the films. Obviously, we're excited about the films. But we always like our films to be a jumping off point for discussion. And who better to discuss these films with than with the filmmakers themselves and with other experts on the subjects that were raised? We are hosting some live discussions for some of the issues that we're covering as part of the festival. On the 8th, we've got a discussion centering on our Indigenous Rights films, which we'll be chatting about with the director of the National Geographic documentary The Last Ice, as well as some Seattle area experts. On the 10th, we'll be talking about prisoner justice with a focus on the powerful documentary Since I've Been Down with the director and some people interviewed in the film as well as uh, other local lawmakers and activists. And then on the 11th, we'll be discussing something as timely as any other issue, voting rights. Apparently there's a, an election coming up. All of the panels are on Facebook Live, are absolutely free, start at 7pm Pacific on their respective days, and do not require a Facebook account to watch. Sorry, Mr Zuckerberg. So tune in, ask some questions, and engage in social justice. All of the information about these panels uh, is in the episode notes below. But of course, nothing in our festival would be able to happen without our wonderful sponsors who empower us to get these films out to as many people as we do. Uh, so I would like to say a huge thank you to ACLU Washington, Solid Ground, Crosscut, Cascade Public Media and KCTS9. You are all lovely, lovely people. Thank you so much for letting us do what we do. And thank you, dear listener, uh, very much for listening to this episode of our podcast. Don't forget to, to like, to comment, to share, subscribe, of course, most importantly, wherever you found us, so you don't miss all of our future episodes. Watch films, be fair to each other, 
and I'll speak to you soon. And vote! Please, just vote! This episode of Justice in Motion was written by Marisa Reyes-Pacheco and Alana Tritt and was produced by the Social Justice Film Institute. Thank you.